welcome back to Constant Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, Endgame. Uh, and for once, something called Endgame that doesn't involve time travel, nor does it suck. Looking you, Star Trek Voyager. Uh, but this is an amazing episode, and uh, it, it's got a lot going for it, uh, from interweaving uh, glorious action scenes, some of the most spectacular CGI space battles in this show, period, um, and uh, wonderful character moments, and some wonderful ends to plot lines, and setting up for future stuff, because that is the great thing about Babylon 5, is this episode right here. Any ordinary piece of fiction is the grand finale. This is your final episode. This is your big hurrah, and then the end. Uh, look at one of the most famous pop culture, uh, you know, science fiction franchises out there, Star Wars. How does Star Wars end? Oh, that's right. We killed the Emperor. Yay, let's all celebrate. Despite the fact that, you know, uh, killing the figurehead of an empire doesn't do much, and uh, there's still plenty of loyalists out there, uh, and they may have lost resources now, but they are now very, very angry. That is why the books, The Expanded Universe, is some of the best stuff that comes out of Star Wars, because it explores what happens afterwards and that and now what question. And this is something I brought up during the the, the Shadow War. This is what makes Babylon 5 so good, is its constant want to say, and now what? Sheridan takes down the big bad, uh, Clark is no more, Earth is free, yeah, but and now what? He just instigated a military coup d'etat on his government. There has to be consequences. You know, things cannot go back to normal. They just cannot. This world is not that simple. Uh, and that's what I love about Babylon 5 is that it's willing to say, yeah, good guys prevail, but they must answer for that prevailing. Why did they take the reactions? And in why why did they do it in this way? Which is going to be the premise of the entirety of next episode. Uh, but focusing on this episode right here, uh, a lot of the best stuff actually outside of like the big, you know, amazing spectacle that is CGI space battles, really comes from the Marcus section. I like how um, he's constantly sort of distracted from everything. Uh, and when the Lanier calls him out on this, uh, you know, uh, Marcus is sort of, uh, is insistent on two things, really. Uh, that Ivanova gets what she wishes for. Uh, he knew her very well. She knew, He knew that she would be on, want to be on the front line to take the fight to Clark, even if she's not physically capable of fighting, you know, uh, just sitting on a medical chair, she would want to be there, period. But also, uh, he is, in his desperation, taken Babylon 5's message, the last best hope, literally. He was like, I gotta go back to Babylon 5, there may be something there to help him. And Lanier's like, no, that's ridiculous. And and in Marcus says, but it's the last vestige of hope. He's clinging to anything he can get his hands on to desperately fix this situation. Remember, he is, at the end of the day, Marcus is 
a man who's suffering from severe survivor's guilt. He joined the Rangers as a result of the death of his brother, and he feels responsible for outliving his brother. It took him forever to come to terms with that. And now, this woman that he has befriended, who he cares about, and never got the chance to really tell him how he felt, is now being taken away from him. Uh, and he feels like he owes it to the world, to Ivanova, to do something. He cannot live with this guilt of being the one who keeps living anymore. Uh, and I, I like how... Lanier knows about the, the, you know, the alien healing device, but he's like, there's nothing that can work there. And the way he says it, it feels like a classic Membari lie of lying to save face. And because Marcus is a ranger and has spent many, many a time with Membari, specifically Lanier, he can see right through it. And he knows that Lanier is hiding something from him. And that's when he begins digging into, um, you know, the the uh in into the alien healing device records and he finds out about how it how it helped garibaldi uh and there's also a nice little reference to walkabout with one of franklin's messages uh talking about caitlin the singer that uh he slept with in that episode uh and uh and her tragic death that was a nice little touch um but I, and I like it how he absconds with an entire White Star. You know, he manipulates Lanier to get on a shuttle to go visit the land, and then he takes the White Star and he just leaves. And um, I, what, what I love most about this is that this war meant nothing to him. He's, uh, he's, he's a human, yes, but he's not from Earth. He's from a colony. And he's talked about many a times that Earth really means nothing to him. As far as he was concerned, Earth was just that place that kept bleeding his, his colony dry with taxes. That's all he knew Earth as. Um, this war and taking back Earth and fighting the good fight really means nothing to him. It is just something he's doing because he believes it's his job to do the right thing. And this is the right thing. But Ivanova is his friend, the woman he loves, and he cannot live with his survivor's guilt anymore. And it ties, it ties nicely into his ranger origins because what is the thing that we refer to when someone meets someone that's they're going to marry or they want to spend the rest of their life with? It's always, have you met the one? And what is part of the Ranger's Code? All right, we live for the one. We would die for the one. And, uh, and in, in you know, that is a very literal thing in terms of Mimbari culture and tradition, the until za, uh, the embodiment of purity in the Mimbari uh, society. But taken in this context, it's all about the person he loves the most. And uh, his sacrifice at the end of the episode, uh, brilliantly done, brilliantly directed. I like how the the uh, the camera slowly sways through the med bay uh, with us getting some uh, small flashbacks to uh, the time Sheridan and Franklin used it to keep Garibaldi alive, and this slowly but surely reveals, uh, you know, uh, Ivanova and Marcus hooked up to it. Now. This was what I was going to talk about last episode, but decided against it because I knew it was going to be, you know, not a spoiler here. Is obviously Marcus is now dead. 
uh, he gave all his life energy to Ivanova so that Ivanova could live. It's a beautifully poetic thing, um, and really fitting in with Marcus's survivor guilt, and uh, it really feeds into Ivanova's sort of pessimistic outlook of that she has nothing left to lose, and everyone she's ever cared about, you know, um, turns out uh, to pass her on by. They're both survivors in a weird way, uh, and both took different uh, d different routes. Ivanova took the route of pessimism and anger and abandonment, and Marcus took the route of optimism, doing the right thing, and giving your life to save another. Uh, they are very fitting towards each other. But James has said that in a perfect world, Claudia Christensen would have stayed on. Uh, there are many, 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 many stories about uh, why Claudia decided to leave. Um, uh, I don't have uh, any insider knowledge, and I don't know which one is true. A lot of it, I believe, is hearsay, you know, changed by perception, biases, and time. Uh, so... You know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, she she decided to leave, which means that we won't have Ivanova past next episode uh, until the series finale, which was filmed as part of this season block. That's a, another story entirely. But uh, as a result, there's no way to really pay off Marcus's sacrifice there's one amazing scene next episode, which I will dig into uh, n next time, uh, that will deal with it. But I think the melancholy of this tragedy of Monarchus giving his life for Ivanova could have really played through into Ivanova's arc in Season 5. Instead, she gets replaced by Lockley. Uh, so, you know, uh, we have an entirely new character, which... I like Lockley. I'll get into that and get into why uh, when she's introduced. But it would have been nice to see uh, this pay, you know, sort of payoff in a way. Um, in a world that JMS knew that Claudia was not going to stay on, he said that uh, that he would have kept Marcus around and just let Ivanova die. There's pros and cons to both ends. Um, both are fitting for each character. Um, and both are incredibly tragic. Um, both fulfill their arcs. Um, I, I guess that's a testament to JMS's writing style that he could fundamentally change something in the narrative and it still work. Um, but I think I like it the way it is. There's something inherently tragic about Ivanova keeping on living after everyone has gone and died um, which will feed into something that she uh, that that she feels like, and how she feels, and, and thinks she says in the series finale, Sleepy and Light. Um, so I like it the way it is. Um, even if we have to do without Marcus, who's an amazing character. Um, now moving on. Um, the scene where uh Franklin. And Garibaldi are sort of confronted with the nature of what they are doing. Um, is it interesting? I think it is a bit clunkily handled. I'm not sure if that is 
actor delivery or the dialogue was a bit rusty and could have been cleaned up i'm not quite sure on a technical level i would i would say that there could have been a better way to get this across uh via dialogue than the way it was handled but it's fine nonetheless because we get to see franklin really struggle with this we have not known us the audience have not known about anything in regards to the shadow augmented telepaths what's going on all we know is that franklin was horrified to find out what sheridan had planned for them and then this happens uh the you know the shadow augmented telepaths are being smuggled upon earth destroyers to be let out after triggered by lita to merge with the destroyers and completely and utterly wreck them uh and these people are going to die they are sacrificial lambs everybody knows it it is a very cold callous thing to do uh but is that is the nature of war is sometimes you have to make a choice and those choices are never black and white and those choices can hurt but you have to eliminate your emotions from it and just move forward it's cold calculus brought down to the very human level compared to the very antagonistic level we've seen it leveled at previously in this series. Um, and I, when, she, when she says, you're treating them like nothing more than weapons, and Franklin says, well, they are weapons. It's true. Um, the Shadow Augmented telepaths are victims. They, 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 were, uh, they were first victims of the Psychor, and then later victims of the Shadows. And we see... Uh, that that when one of them was awakened, uh, they immediately wanted to merge with the machine and they were being driven insane by the constant voice of wanting to be compelled to merge. And then when another one was awakened, uh, they wanted to commit suicide. The damage done to them is so severe that whether they can live a normal life is, is possibly not even in the equation anymore. Um, it... It is the hard truth that these people have been so damaged that the, they are exactly the way Bester first described them. Weapon supplies. Callous, miserable, horrible to think about, but it's the truth. And it's why they're used this way. And Sheridan and Franklin and Garibaldi and Lita, they all know what they're doing is pushing a moral boundary that probably shouldn't be pushed, but they're taking a chance in hopes that maybe, just maybe, if they get this job done, they can help the ones that are left. Um, it is, it's chilling to, to think about having to have, have to make that choice. I don't know if I could. Um, so the, the, the big assault um, I like how Clark tries to undermine Sheridan by getting one of his teachers to be, you know, General Leftcourt to be the, the, the head of the, the defense. And the thing is, is that the idea is that A, Leftcourt taught Sheridan, so he knows everything that he knows. You know, he knows how he fights, he knows how he plans, but also if Sheridan knows as General Leftcourt, he may be a bit more lenient because he, you know, you know, there, there's this sort of teacher-student, you know, relationship there where you care about the people that taught you, you know, your mentor. And Sheridan is sentimental in a way. 
Um, and it, it cracks me up that he does this because previously, as I pointed out back in season two and then brought back up here in season four, uh, is that the Clark regime continues to underestimate and try and pigeonhole Sheridan into a direction hoping they're right and they're constantly proven wrong by him they thought he was a pushover that he would that because of his insistence on loyalty and apoliticality he would be a pushover and immediately fall to clark nope it's because of his duty his loyalty and his apoliticality that he pushed back because he has very different beliefs from them and he is not an idiot and he is not an automaton uh, and so once again they are underestimating him and trying to pigeonhole him into something that they can easily deal with um, and I like how when they when they get to earth there's this nice symmetry where you know Babylon 5 the a lot of the major arcs begin with the Earth Mambari War, which we will be seeing pretty much in full in the made for TV movie in the beginning. Uh, and uh, that ended with the Battle of the Line, with a Mambari fleet, you know, slowly approaching Earth, destroying everything in its path for complete and utter annihilation of the human race. And now, a joint human and Mambari fleet slowly approach Earth in hopes of freeing Earth from itself. This time, not destroying, but preserving. Uh, and there's a nice symmetry there, that everything circles back around itself. Um, now, I've seen uh, people complain and uh, him and haw about Clark uh, and his plan this episode. Um... I disagree with them because I think the people who complain have never paid attention to history ever. Um, his plan is scorched earth. He's petty. He's stupid and he's petty. Uh, so what he plans to do is he, you know, he circles out scorched earth on the on a paper that is the ascension of the ordinary man. Uh, and he plans to turn Earth's planetary defense network against itself and bombard Earth. If I can't have Earth, no one can. Now, people have said this is ridiculous, this is stupid, he's just plain Jane evil, there's no nuance there. And I point to Hitler, who had the exact same policy, it was called Scorched Earth. That's where the name comes from. It was his plan. He wanted to blow up Germany. Because, hey, uh, you know, if I can't have it, no one can. That's the thing about megalomaniacs. They're narcissistic as all hell. And they believe they are the true and utter believers and saviors of the world. And if they can't have it, then no one deserves salvation. And they are that petty to burn the bridges behind them. And just like Hitler, he takes the coward's way out. Instead of facing up to the consequences of his actions, he's about to shoot himself in the head and deal with but not being around anymore. Um, and in that that scene uh, where uh, Sheridan gives his big speech and we see uh, uh, Clark writing the message and then about to commit suicide, uh, I really like that speech by Sheridan. It's probably one of the best hero speeches I've seen uh, on TV. It's very well delivered, very well written, um, very powerful. I also like that the senator... Uh, that's that's coming to arrest Clark happens to be Dr. Chakwas from Mass Effect. 
I just think that's really funny. Uh, you know, it means nothing, but seeing this Mass Effect is heavily inspired by Babylon 5. It was cool to see that they share some actors. Um, and, and, and just going back to Clark real quick, one thing I like about Clark um, is that he is a villain that we hardly know or care about at all. He's been in, what, two, three episodes? He's mentioned a lot, but he appears in person maybe three times at most. Uh, and But he has such this big, imposing presence. He's been there since season one. And all of this, as well as the shadow manipulation and him rising to power, all of this is all connected, and we feel an intense hatred for everything he has done, and yet we hardly know the man. And I, I like that. I, the, the, there's a school of thought that says the villain must be sympathetic, the audience must know the villain, uh, and uh, the villain must not be all that different from the protagonist. They must be two sides of the same coin. That's fair. That's perfectly fair. That, that that has led to some brilliant stories I've read. But I also believe that there is room for a story that's totally focused on the protagonist, that the antagonist is just an obstacle. Hell, if you look at basic three-act structures, the antagonist is literally just an obstacle in each act. Uh, that is the purpose of the antagonist. Your main character wants something, something gets in the way. Uh, and so I believe while there are wonderful stories out there that is sympathetic towards villains and gives them great motivations and interesting character development, you don't have to do this. Uh, and I think it's become too prevalent in media where the, especially because I have seen this stated, I have had people say this to my face, the villains are always more interesting than the heroes. And I absolutely disagree certain villains are a lot of fun you know i'm a comic book reader kingpin one of my favorite villains joker another great villain fun fun to watch you know and but you know daredevil and batman are inherently more interesting in my opinion i'm more interested in the tortured hero than i am the maniac with bloodlust or the narcissistic crime boss who believes that uh, that he can turn uh, the city into something great by doing evil. There's th there's a lot of story potential in that, but I find the hero's journey far more interesting. Uh, and so Clark is one of those perfect examples of an all-omnipresent villain who you feel the effects of in all their actions that you absolutely despise, but hardly know. I think that was really smart on JMS's part. Um, but overall, this is an amazing episode, uh, just all around perfect. I like the little touches, like when the ISM reporter since season one finally comes back on air after being, you know, arrested in season three, and she has to take a moment to wipe tears from her eyes before she can continue reporting. You know, just the pure emotionality of it, that she basically just walked right out of prison came right down to the ice and studios, sat down in the chair and started telling the truth. Um, and it just the, that overwhelming, you know, happiness that they have. Uh, a lot of beautiful moments in this episode, a lot of great action. Um, and 
in what's so great is that this is not the end. We got we got another season to go. But even if it was to end at season four, as due to the season four crunch, it still ain't the end. We got at least one more episode dealing with the aftermath of this, and then something else entirely. So until then, I'll see you next time. Bye.